0: Let's turn to in the New Testament to Philippians. I don't know whether it's fair to say we're between series or exactly how that all works as the Holy Spirit gives us direction to minister the Word to the church. But this morning and next week, We're going to glean some truths from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Perhaps we could call this a mini Bible study. What often happens is we look at the word and as if we're not really familiar with especially the epistles, because we kind of know that the gospels are about the life of Jesus. We kind of know that. We look at the epistles, Galatians and Titus and Jude and 2 Peter and whatever. Too many of us, I think, are basically unfamiliar with at least the general scope and purpose of that particular letter. So perhaps over the next many months as we speak to the church, there might be an occasion to come in for one, two or three weeks with just a synopsis of a particular letter to begin to let us know what are the issues in that letter and help us to understand the purpose and be able to better appreciate and when we go into the letter to read it to hopefully better glean from and receive from the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us. So today and next week we're going to be gleaning from Philippians And we're going to talk about four issues concerning the gospel. Four issues about the gospel. We're going to talk about the centrality of the gospel. We're going to talk about the character of the gospel. Those two will be talked about this morning. The centrality, the center place of the gospel, the character or the virtue of the gospel. And then next week, we're going to talk about the experience of the gospel and then the expression of the gospel. But the theme will be, as in all of Paul's letters, the gospel is the theme. So if you'll be opening your Bible to Philippians chapter 1, we'll be reading in verses 1 through 7. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you so much. Father, for not only moving upon our hearts to save us, But Father, You have left us a body of letters, of information, of writing, of Scripture. That tells us who You are. What You have done. And how we are to relate to You. And receive from You. And walk with You and please You. And all of this is done, Father, by the personal intervention and involvement in our lives of your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you that this word that you have given us, this scripture, this Bible, is the truth from cover to cover. Absolutely every detail of it from you, about you, to us, about us. So, Father, as we believe Your Word, we can receive Your Word and be a blessed people as You are blessed to bless us. Father, this morning as we share briefly concerning the centrality and the character of the Gospel, Father, Way too little time on these very major issues. But Father, would you cause your word by the Holy Spirit to be shared succinctly, but to be received as an ocean of grace. So Father, would you cause the few minutes of sharing to blossom Into hours and hours of receiving and experiencing and blessing. As only you can do. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. You may have one that's a little different, but basically it's going to be about the same. There may be a few words here and there that are different. The centrality of the gospel. Whenever you read the Apostle Paul, he's going to deal with a full range of issues in our lives. Some way, the Apostle Paul is going to touch everything about us. In some way, there is not an experience or an issue or a circumstance or a tragedy or trial that any of us have or can ever experience that is not touched in these epistles. If it's not touched in these epistles, it's not reality. And even the Lack of reality is touched in these epistles. Even if you're imagining it. He talks about imaginations. So everything is covered. And everything is covered within the context of one great issue, if you would. And that is summarized in this word, the gospel. The gospel, the Greek word euangelium, which means good news. Good news. Remember, we used to sing, good news are coming. Good news, good news are coming, good news. You can see why Matt is up here leading worship and not Peter Davidson. Thank you, Matt, for seeing the light on that. And so Paul's purpose in writing these many letters that he writes is to encourage and build up the church, to instruct the church, to discipline the church, to elaborate concerning the doctrine of the gospel. And his whole purpose is to, in the letter and in his encouragement and in the various ways that he deals with the issues, his purpose is to mature the church, to bring the church to a place of growth in Christ. And that is what he does here. So let's read the first seven verses together in Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy... Bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for all of you in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace. With me. And as we read these first words of introduction and purpose that Paul has presented here. We see his immediate interest and his immediate purpose. He gets right to the point. And his immediate purpose, his immediate interest is this. The gospel. You see... The gospel had played a central place in Paul's life. What place did the gospel play in Paul's life? Isn't it interesting when we talk to people, when we write to people, when we email or whenever we converse with someone, it doesn't take long for our passion to be revealed. It doesn't take long in a general, normal kind of a friendship conversation for that which is central and controlling and important to us comes out in our conversation. Some way it's going to come out. And you can't listen to Paul. You can't read Paul. I don't think we could be able to sit under any circumstance and listen to this man no matter what the circumstance was without Seeing and hearing, not in a very casual, very innuendo way, but in a very specific way, the gospel. You see, what place did the gospel hold in Paul's life? It wasn't a peripheral issue, it wasn't a secondary issue. It wasn't one of the things that were important to him. The gospel held the central place in Paul. It was central in his life. Nothing else was more core to Paul than the gospel. Nothing else. Nothing else. You know, and as we share this about this man, let us be those like the Bereans who are examining ourselves And asking myself, and as you ask yourself, Peter just said that the gospel was of centrality to Paul. Is that true of me? Is that my feeling? Is that my circumstance? Is the gospel that central in my life as it was in this man's life? Because let's face it. The gospel is not to be more central in an apostle's life than it is in any of our lives. You know, isn't that how we think? Well, that's Paul. Well, of course, that's the apostle Peter. He is supposed to. But that's the preacher. That's what they're... Pay- There's a... If we are born again, if we are children of God, the gospel is to be the very core and center of our being. Whether we are an apostle or whether we have just been born again and have realized we're a child of God. The gospel is to have center stage. It permeated everything that Paul did. It permeated everything he wrote. It permeated him completely. It was his constant emphasis. No matter what the circumstance. Why? Why was it this way for Paul? The reason was... Because of what the gospel had done in and for this man, I don't believe this morning if someone in here had inherited ten million dollars, and you just heard about it last night. You just inherited ten million after-tax dollars, real money. Before taxes, you no telling what the thing is worth—a dollar ninety-eight but you have just inherited 10 million tax dollars, Gary. You just got it. If that were to happen to you, you would have let someone know this morning. It would have permeated something about your face, about your carriage, about your words, about the tempo of your life right now, wouldn't it? Now, you can say amen if that's the truth. Had I inherited $10 million this morning, I would have told at least somebody about it. The gospel is to be this in our lives. It was in Paul's life. And that kind of an impact comes out of the pores. Well, Paul's life had been turned upside down by the gospel. Let's turn to Acts chapter 26. Paul's life had totally been not just touched, not just kind of renovated, improved, but Paul's life had been turned 180 degrees the other way. Radically, completely changed from top to bottom. He was absolutely no longer the same man that he was prior to the Gospel. Let's listen to Paul's own testimony as we read Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. And he is telling King Agrippa this story. Paul is in defense of his imprisonment right now, trying to explain what is going on in his life. He's been accused of attacking Judaism and being against Israel and trying to undo the Old Testament and put it away and destroy it. And he's trying to explain what exactly is going on in his life as we get to verses 9 through 11 in chapter 26. And he says, So then I thought thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, I was a good Jew. I was a Pharisee. And all of a sudden, the teaching about this man Jesus comes in here and it appears as if everything of the Old Testament, of Moses, of the Ten Commandments, was under attack and was going to be destroyed. So, in view of that, I have a passion for God and for His Word. I knew that I had to take a hold of this heresy and begin to work against it and actually do everything I could to destroy the heresy concerning Jesus. So he says, I, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus. Do you notice this man is not looking to receive Jesus. He is not looking to be saved. He is looking to undo salvation. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, listen, I try to force them to blaspheme. And this guy wasn't, Satisfied with just killing Christians. He wanted you to lose your salvation within the context of your understanding. You see. He didn't want you to just lose your life. But when you deny Jesus, he wanted you to lose everything. All hope of everything. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. This is who Paul was. But you see, the gospel had changed all that. And this is no longer who Paul is when we read Philippians. You see, this man was so radically changed that those who knew him before, other than his physical appearance, those who knew him before would never have recognized him. It's not that there were just a few things about his life that had changed, but he was so radically changed that someone could say, I know you're Paul because I know who you are physically by looking at you, but you're not Paul of us have a testimony that after having been saved your old cronies and friends and even your relatives could say you're not the same person anymore or would they say well I see a little bit of improvement here or there well thank God for the improvement but the gospel is to so radically change us that we ain't the same people no more See, the gospel is not a work of improvement. It's a work of radical change from the bottom to the top, from outside to inside. The whole thing is absolutely different. That's the power of the gospel. It's not something just to listen to on a Saturday or Sunday morning and to sing about and to clap about and to give a few dollars toward. It is a revolutionary, total destruction of the old and rebuilding of the new. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul writes these words and when he writes them, he, I think, has in view first his own life. He can remember. In fact, he lamented on several occasions, I used to persecute and kill these people oh god's grace has so changed me that look at who i am now the gospel and he says if anyone be in christ the gospel puts you in christ saved if anyone is in christ he's a new creature when paul says new he doesn't mean just a little change he means new as having not existed that way before that's what he means by new Not just putting a little paint on the wall and say, I have a new house. Absolutely. Not having existed before. That's what that word new means there. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Let's consider this transformation. From one man to another by the power, the centrality... Of the gospel. Let's consider the transformation. Turn to Acts again, chapter 26, verses 9 to 11. You remember what we just read. Remember those verses, what he used to do as we turned there. That's the before man, that's the man, that's the woman, that's the young person that each one of us are born to be in the natural. Amen? Oh, I know you didn't think that you were hostile to the name of Jesus. I mean, after all, you were raised in church and you liked the things of the religion and you enjoyed it and you sang some songs and you even gave some money. And and you were just fine. But you see, from God's perspective, before you and I were impacted by the gospel, we had the same kind of testimony. It only worked out differently. But it was the same before God that we were hot we were hostile to the name of Jesus. We didn't think we were hostile, but we were hostile. Have you ever been hostile and you didn't consider it, but everybody else did? You know, I'm sometimes accused of raising my voice. I don't think I am. But you might consider it that way. So you see, the truth of the matter is, when I raise my voice, I actually raise it. Even though I may not think it, the truth of it is not what I think. The truth of it is on your side. The truth was, is rather, about who we were. Is that we were just like the Apostle Paul. He was no worse than we were. We were no worse than he was. We were all on the same level ground. Before God. What about the new man? Let's turn to Philippians. Back to Philippians chapter 1. What changed him? The gospel. Not self-improvement books. Not education. Not additional income. The gospel changed this man. You know, I'm waiting for you to turn to Philippians 1. And I'm not going to do this. I'm looking at changed people. I'm looking at changed people. I'm looking at people who have been changed by the mighty power of the gospel within even the last few weeks or months. I'm seeing them. I'm seeing them. In fact, any of you who have been changed by the power of the gospel in the last few months, if you want to stand up and say hallelujah, praise God, you have my absolute permission to do so. It is shouting words. I'm not the same anymore. Thank God I'm not the same anymore. Can you say amen? You know, I tell you what. Phage, you know, one thing. I'll, I'll give the black community. When the gospel is being preached, you're with us and you're moving and you got it. The white folks sit here like... Uh Yeah, yeah. Where's the energy? Where's the feeling? Where's the passion for the gospel? Let's get involved in this. Not for me, but for God and for one another. Come on. Come on. I'd much rather preach to black folks. And I used to do that, as you know, for 15 years, twice a week. Because they're with us. Right, Earl? You know how to respond, brother. That's just free. Sometimes white folks just sit. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Just sit. Now, you may be upset by that, but, that you know, we just can't do much about that. It's just not much they can do about it until after the meeting, and then I'll be in trouble. (laughs) Listen to these words. Remember what he said about himself. Now listen to him. I'm going to read verses 21 to 25 in chapter 1 and then verse 17 in chapter 2. Chapter 1, 21 to 25. Chapter 2, verse 17. I'm just going to go ahead and read them all through. Follow along. For me, to live is Christ and death is gain. Whew, what a change. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ. The devotion, the love of his life. For that is much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He is denying himself the opportunity to go before the Lord whom he loved because of his love for the church and the church's need for him. This is the same man who would have killed them all a few years ago convinced of this I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith but even if I am this is verse 27 I think being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith I rejoice and share my joy with all of you he is willing now to be poured out he was pouring them out before and now he is being poured out for the gospel what did Paul experience? what had changed him What had Paul experienced that changed him? Succinctly, this. He experienced the personal love of God. He experienced it. The personal love of God for him, not in a theological way, not in a doctrinal way, he was ex- he had experienced the personal love for God for him. Let's turn to Acts 26 again. He's continuing his testimony, telling King Agrippa, Here's who I used to be. I used to kill them and hate them and try to get them to blaspheme and lock them up. And I was going over to that city to get them, in this city to get them. And I was enraged against them, King Agrippa. And I'm assuming King Agrippa said, Well, what happened? He encountered the love of God. He encountered the love of God in Jesus Christ personally. Acts 26, 12 to 18. Read along with me. While so enraged, engaged rather, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Why? To kill the believers. At midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, you see, he knew it was a voice of God. And he says, who are you? Who Are you? Can you imagine this? Who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to these things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. And that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. What happened? The freight train of God's love plowed into Paul. You remember what the Apostle John said? 1 John 3. He had the same experience. See what love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. Why? You see, Paul had experienced the life giving, liberating, forgiving, transforming love of God through the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel isn't a thing. The gospel is the activity of God's great heart to rescue us from an eternity of damnation by the means of the sacrifice of of His own beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. So that Jesus, taking willingly and freely upon Himself all of the penalty and the pain and the guilt of our sin, having never sinned Himself, and taking it to the cross and bearing it as if he had personally sinned against God, which he did not, nor ever would do. And within the six hours upon the cross, this Most Worthy One, who is the Creator and worth all of mankind times eternity, this Most Worthy One pays in Himself. The price of the wrath of God that we should pay forever. And when he dies, he says this, Tetelestai, he says the fullness of the wrath of God is paid forever. The debt is paid for my people. No longer to be paid by anyone or in any circumstance. I've done it all and he dies to be raised three days later, to be exalted in the heavens and sitting at the right hand of the Father, fully accepted as the risen man, having shed His blood for His people, now He sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, birthing the church and sanctifying us forever who are called by His name. That's the Gospel. The love of God. The love of God which we so radically not only didn't deserve, we were demerited on the other side, not just, we, we it just, how, what can you say? Nothing else mattered to Paul as a result of this. The only thing that mattered to Paul was his relationship with the Lord Jesus and how that walked out. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. The only thing that mattered to Paul now was his relationship to Jesus and how it walked out and how he was to minister it in his life personally and for the church. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Why? In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The gospel had done this. What was the result in Paul? The result was, we're here today because of that, but for Paul personally, listen to these words. This is the result of the powerful impact and the centrality of the gospel in this man. 2 Timothy 4, 7 to 8. You don't have to turn there. Hopefully you have a reference to it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. You see, at the end of our days... When we are dying, we will then fully realize the significance and the wisdom of God in saving us. Because then we can look back on our lives and say, thank God He saved me. Because we all come to an end, don't we? We all come to an end. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Therefore, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness for which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all of those who love his appearing. Was it worth it for Paul? Have you experienced such a transformation, a transformation in your own life? Have you experienced such a transformation? Is the gospel increasingly becoming center place in your life and in my life? or the other issues of life? Slowly and hopefully not too slowly, being shuffled to the edges and the perimeter of our lives so that the center place may be occupied by Christ. I know what we say. We say, Jesus sits on the throne of my heart. But does he? When it comes to issues of obedience, issues of worship, issues of assembling together, issues of service, Issues of reading the Word, issues of prayer, issues of giving, issues of battling and overcoming temptation, is the gospel really central in my life? Because if it is, we will have a Romans 8.37 experience. I am more than a conqueror through Him who loves me. Amen? And to the place that the gospel is becoming center, we will have greater experience and freedom and the victory of all things. Now also, we not only see the central place of the gospel in Philippians, but we see its character. What is the main virtue? What is the main characteristic of the gospel? What is, if you would, that very initial character? Activity, virtual act, virtue activity that occurs when we are confronted with the gospel. Humility. Humility. Humility, I believe, is the very most basic virtual characteristic of the I think it's the, the ground upon which the gospel is built in our lives. Humility. Why do we struggle with any sin? There's a lack of humility in that area because pride produces sin. Humility produces godliness. What is humility? Well, in order to find humility, Jesus really is our best definition and example. Turn to Philippians again, chapter 2. Remember, this is a study of Philippians, so it's okay to continue to stay in Philippians. Chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Paul gives this this great hymn, this great doxology of what humility is in these verses. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And the apostle telling the church how to live out the gospel, he says, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, he didn't say you need to get it. You have this attitude. So let's recognize what it is and begin to seek God for its development and maturity in us. So have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, although he was God himself, the son He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't try to come on earth and say, Hey, I'm God. I'm God. I'm as good as God. What God did, I did it too. You can look at me. I did that. I said that. But he emptied himself of being. The revelation of God in himself and of all of his divine use of his prerogatives. He emptied himself, he took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the image or likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He humbled himself. What was the result? Wherefore also God has highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in the heavens, things on the earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility is the preeminent virtual characteristic of the gospel. It's the central characteristic. You see... Humility is Jesus' own joyful surrender of His personal rights and prerogatives. Who do we hate that? You just get left out of something. Just don't get invited to something. Just don't get your way on something. Let somebody get in front of you in the traffic or park in your parking place. I know what I'm talking about. My wife can say, "Hey, he's talking about himself right now. I have a problem in this area. Humility is Jesus' joyful. Not just surrender. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Joyful. Yes. Surrender of His personal rights. And His joyful submission to God's will. Joyful. In all things as God's joy-filled servant. Humility. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame. And now He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 19 and 30. Essentially He has said, I can do nothing except as I see and hear my Father doing and saying. I do nothing of my own initiative. I am the consummate, submitted man. I don't like to be told what to do by other people. How many of you wives, now wives, perk up. You're going to like this. How many of you wives know, I'm serious, really, I really mean that. I'm not being cute. It's difficult for me to be cute. Well, look at me. You can tell. There should be a round of laughter on that one. Trying to be cute. Ken Ward and I have problems in this area. We're not that cute. How many of you wise really do feel that there are just a lot of areas that you are more intelligent or more wise or more gifted than your husbands? I mean, it's true. Raise your hands if you really feel that way. Come on, Kay. You got to raise five hands, Kay. Come on. All of them. Okay. Come on. But the issue isn't what you have and how you can do it. The issue is, will we know and joyfully submit to God's will? And so I believe that God puts blockheads into these marriages where these women who, let's face it, my wife knows a whole lot more and a lot better off than in many areas than I am but it is not an issue of who's the better one, but who's the submitted one to the will of God. Humility is a joyful act of submission. Humility recognizes, you know, that this is unto God and for His great joy. Oh, I may have problems in submitting or problems in obedience, problems in... Surrendering, problems in whatever. If I begin to get a hold of the issue that as I do it humbly, by the power and the presence of the grace and Holy Spirit's work, God, God is receiving the praise. Can you do it for the sake of the praise of God? Humility. What did Jesus' humility accomplish for us? You see, in His incarnation, when He became a man in the flesh and blood, Jesus accomplished our salvation. You see, humility of Jesus did not begin with the incarnation. His humility made the incarnation possible. It's not that Jesus became a humble man when He became humble when He said, I will go to the cross. It wasn't that... He became humble when He says, I will submit Myself to being born. Jesus in Himself has always been the humble, submitted Son of the Father's will. Always. This is always who He is. You see, the humility is the character of Jesus Christ. Always. We're just seeing it on the pages of this book and experiencing it in our own personal lives. But this is who Christ is. He is the humble servant of His Father. Humility is the virtue by which we come into the kingdom of God. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit doesn't mean they don't have a whole lot of money on them. Poor in spirit means that those who recognize their need of a Savior, they need to be redeemed. The humble are first recognizing of this fact that they need to be saved. Well, where did that come from? You don't have to turn there, but you remember in Ezekiel thirty seven uh thirty six, verses twenty six and twenty seven, the Holy Spirit speaking Through Ezekiel the prophet to the exiles in Babylon Babylon, the Israelite exiles after being destroyed by the Babylonian empire they've been taken out into exile and Ezekiel is telling them hey look the thing is not over this is something I'm doing right now but there's coming a day and in that day I will take out of them the heart of stone the pride of their hearts I will break it with my grace with the gospel I will hammer it at one time and shatter the great stone of pride in their life. And I will create in them a humble heart so that they can hear and receive and respond joyfully, willingly, freely to the gospel. You see, outside of humility, you can't even respond to the love of God. We can't even receive the love of God until humility breaks up the hard, hard, hard heart and causes us to be able to say, even when we don't even understand it, I need Jesus. The work of God. The central issue for the gospel is humility. Not preaching the gospel. Not reading your Bible. Humility. Because out of humility comes everything else. Humility not only Is the virtue that causes our salvation to be possible. Humility is also the character of the gospel that causes our transformation, our sanctification, our maturing in Christ to be possible. Never make the priority prayer in your life for God to do things in your life. But first ask God to create in you a heart of humility clothe me Father more and more with the humility of my Lord Jesus deal with the pride and bring forth the humility and develop it and encourage it and grow it and expand it so in that way then I can be receiving of the work of the Holy Spirit to be transformed otherwise no matter what I say and what I do and how I do it and when I do it and with whom I do it I can never experience transformation because it has to be coming out of a heart of humility. Don't you see? Humility. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. We want to be a humble people. Don't exalt yourself. The Lord will humble you. How? Boom. I have experienced some humbling in my day. What is the fruit of humility? The fruit of humility is our, and I say our in quotes, our ability by the Holy Spirit's work of the gospel to experience first to receive and then to continue to experience unto transformation, unto transformation, unto transformation, the love of God. You see, you don't get the love of God and then you become humble. God humbles us in order to be able to receive the love of God. Fruit of humility is our experience of God's love so that we will love God and will love others. Listen to these words in 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we first love God, but that he first loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is love? I'm reading right now 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. What is love? We've all heard these words. This is what humility looks like. How do I know whether I'm walking in humility? I know it by looking at what the Word says is the fruit of it. How do you know whether the plant is growing and doing well? You go look at the fruit and the leaves on the plant. You don't dig it up and pull it out of the ground and look at the root. If you did, that's why the thing is dying. You need to get a, Even I know better than that. You look at the fruit to determine the root. The fruit will determine the root's health or lack of it. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Mm, mm, mm. I know we're all making straight A's on this. I'm ahead of the pack. Love does not act unbecomingly. Mm. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered. does not take into account a wrong suffered. How many of you still remember all the things that other people have done to you? Pride. It it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then the first part of verse 8, love never fails. You see, from a Apart from a humble spirit, we can't be saved. We cannot know and understand God. We can't be changed. We can't please God. We can't receive anything from God. So when Paul is instructing the church as to their walk in the gospel, he begins with the issue of humility. You remember in Ephesians, when he after the doctrinal presentation and Chapter 3, what is it? 1, 2, 3, 4. He begins to say, therefore, what? I encourage you, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, in the bond of peace, preserving the unity of the Spirit, in humility. What are we to do? I can't make myself be humble. I must do with this as I do with everything in God. I must come to Him and confess this is what I need. And by faith, truly believing and really knowing according to His history and His present work in my life, that He will actually do what I ask Him to do because it's according to His will and it pleases and glorifies His name. I have to passionately... And persistently ask for a greater work of humility in my life. Don't make it the priority of your life to stop sinning here and stop sinning there and stop sinning there. First of all, ask God to lay the bedrock, I'm sorry, the, the, the what is it called? The soil of humility down. So then, in that soil of humility, He can begin to deal with the issues of your sin and my sin. Let's remember the the issue of humility, the, the source of humility is Jesus Christ himself, crucified and exalted. Remember Philippians 2, 9 through 11. The result of humility is eternal life. The work of humility is a worthy walk, which i just said, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. The fruit of humility is love, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And the cultivation of humility is through devotion to Jesus and His Word as we serve Him and seek Him and ask for Him. Let me read through these final thoughts concerning humility. Some thoughts that hopefully the Holy Spirit has shared with me. Humility asks, it does not demand. Humility is more joyful when another shares the thought that I had. You ever have somebody beat you to a thought and they said it and you don't get the prize? You don't get the recognition? Yeah, I agree with that, brother. Yeah, it's just same thought, you know. Thank you. Same thought, you know. I was thinking that last night. I prayed about that. Humility would rather listen than speak you know what that does to someone like me who has more words in his mind than there are words in the Bible? <laughs> I'm a chatty person. I'm affable. I'm loquacious. I got too many words. I said I got rather than I have. I understand that. I know I said that. Rather listen than speak. I- I- I've watched people. I've watched myself. Now watch me. Look at me. You're speaking with someone. Someone sharing something with you. And you're doing this. What does that say? You're not interested in what I'm saying. You want to say something back. Relax. I mean, we talked about this the other morning. Relax. Chill out. Yeah. Amen. But I have so much to say. I want to teach. I want to I want to make sure they got it. Can we trust God's Holy Spirit to do that? I need to remember that in preaching and and not say as much. Humility loves and pursues God's discipline. Humility is always satisfied and content and secure in Christ. It overflows with public and private gratitude, delights to worship the Lord. If you're here today and you're uncomfortable with worship and all that, it's pride. Lord had to take me through that a few years ago. I've been there. Humility is willing to suffer for the good of others. Hmm. It's revealed and strengthened in prayer and through the Word. It gives God the credit in all things. It's more aware of evidences of grace in another person than of their failings. I can tell you five things what's wrong with him. What's right with him? Well, give me a moment. Humility is always happy in Jesus. Is it okay to say that, Happy? In Jesus. Humility always overcomes and vanquishes pride. And finally, this is a motto of humility. Humility always says this I must decrease. You see, I'm trying to get ahead of it. I must what? Decrease. And Christ must increase. In your own life, where is the place of the gospel? Where is the place of the gospel? And are you pursuing humility? First, as God has given it to you, and now that we have the virtue of humility, because you can't be saved without it, you have humility now as a virtue. What are we doing to encourage it and develop it and mature it? Will you stand with me, please? As we close, I don't know, I don't have a sense one way or the other right now, but you might be listening and heard about the transformation and the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in this man, of Paul's Apostle Paul. The Bible clearly teaches you can only be saved by the work and the presence of God's love in your life. It's the only way. And let me say it like this. As you were listening, did you begin to realize that you presently are like the Apostle Paul was? Is that your life? Well, I've never been antagonistic, openly hostile. I mean, I've tried to do some pretty good things. But you see, you're doing them within the context of your own abilities and of your own desires, of your own power. And it can be said that this is what you have done rather than what the Holy Spirit has done, so you get the credit. And the Lord says, there's going to be no boasting before me, no flesh. And as you have realized that, if you have, have you felt feelings, feelings, yes, a desire in your heart? To know God in such a wonderful, cleansing, freeing, joy-filled, gratifying, content, happy, accepted way. If you're feeling that, that's the Holy Spirit breaking up the hardness of your heart that has resisted and saying, come on. Come on. I am the one who's calling you. There is no better decision. There is no better decision. It's by our hearts together. If I've just described you, would you by just an uplifted hand, let us know that because we just want to pray for you. That's how you're feeling this morning. Would you by your uplifted hand? Just let us know. Just let us know. I've been there, done that, and a whole lot of other people have made this decision. Or you are needing to make it this morning? I'll wait just a moment, and then we'll close. Remember what Keith shared the last week's. Today, if you hear the voice of God while it is still called today, don't put it off. Don't put it off. You know you need to surrender your life and you know God wants you to. Don't put it off because the Lord may not come back and it will be eternally too late. Don't put it off. Do it while the Holy Spirit knocks on the door anyone at all. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Father, cause the gospel to increase in effectiveness and totality in our lives. Father, cause your gospel to be preeminent in us So much so that the world may see in our lives the living gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask you for this, for your name's sake, and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen.